So on the 5th of February 2022, on the eve of her Platinum Jubilee, the Queen issued this statement. Tomorrow, on the 6th of February, it marks the 70th anniversary of my accession in 1952. It is a day that even after 70 years, I still remember as much for the death of my father, King George VI, as for the start of my reign. As we mark this anniversary, it gives me pleasure to renew to you the pledge I gave in 1947 that my life will always be devoted to your service. She then goes on to talk about the, uh, the Jubilee year and what she's anticipating, her excitement, and about the journey uh, that the nation's been through. She talks about the support of her family and the steadfast love of Prince Philip, who she had fairly recently lost at that point, and then talks about the future and her desire for um, the success of her son, King Charles. And then she follows and ends with this. And so as I look forward to continuing with all my heart, I hope this jubilee will bring together families and friends, neighbors and communities after some difficult times for so many of us in order to enjoy the celebrations and to reflect on the positive developments in our day-to-day -day lives that have so happily coincided with my reign. And then she signs it in her own hand, your servant, Elizabeth R. Here we have the monarch of our nation, the head of state of 14 Commonwealth realms, the head of the Commonwealth. And her pledge is to serve with all her heart the people of those nations. And it couldn't be a greater contrast than the time of Philippians. The Philippian church in the city of Philippi, a Roman colony in what is now northern Greece, then Macedonia in the first century, was in a culture in the middle of the Roman Empire and the entirety of the ancient uh, world that was ordered and entirely based on the cult of power. And the whole concept and philosophy was that the gods were those in power and they did what they wanted with people. People were just the playthings of the gods to give them the pleasure and gratitude that they desired. And life for mere mortals was a pursuit and exploitation of status and power. Because power allows you in that culture to do whatever you want to those that you have power over to your servants, to your slaves, to your subjects, to your conquered people, to use them for your pleasure, for your whim, to glorify you as you take those you captured in the train, uh, the, uh, the, the glorious um, celebratory train of slaves and captives that come into the city as an emperor or general comes back from war, to kill them if you so desire. And at that time, the letter to the Philippians was written in uh, around about AD 62. Nero was the emperor. Nero, who killed his own mother, killed his first wife. It's suspected that he also killed his second wife and is proclaiming his own divinity, that he is Lord and that he should be worshipped 
and yet it is accepted as the order of things. He is admired and even emulated by those elites in that culture. In the ancient world, the idea of a ruler as servant of ordinary people was abhorrent. It was corrupt. It was seen as dangerous. It was seen as subverting the natural order of things as it was ordained by the gods. So how did we get from Nero and the emperors who were there to exploit in any way they could the power they had achieved to our queen, servant, servant queen, servant of the people. Everything changed because of one man, the only truly divine man, the universe transforming example of that man, Jesus Christ, who changed everything. And Paul talks about him here as he encourages the Philippians to follow his example. And we have this beautiful piece of literature, this poem, this bit of prose that describes who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, New Testament scholars have debated about this passage. Was this originally, was this written by Paul, as in, has he writing this to the Philippians for the first time? Or was he actually quoting, as some believe, a hymn that was sung in the early church and using it to illustrate who God was? Some have even suggested that it was a hymn that was taught to him by Ananias in Damascus immediately after Paul um, had his sight restored having had his Damascus Road experience. But whatever, whether that is the origin or whether it's Paul's own words, it teaches us so deeply and profoundly who Jesus was and who Jesus is. It teaches us a number of things that are so important for the foundation of our faith. It teaches us that Jesus always existed with God. Right at the start of John chapter 1, John's gospel, John puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. He was therefore equal to God. He had the greatest power in the universe, in equality with God, the most deserving of glory of anything and anyone. And yet... He willingly became a man to fulfill God's salvation plan for the world, for the universe, for us 
as individuals. And he became, it tells us here quite clearly, he became fully human. Not just in appearance as the Gnostics try to claim that, you know, he just looked like he was human, but it was really God just dressed up in skin. Actually, he took on all the attributes of a human being. And to do that, he voluntarily laid aside his divine rights and his status. The Greek word in that portion of the passage is echinosum. It talks about Jesus emptying himself emptying himself of his divine privilege, his, his, the things that were by rights his, his status and power, and he emptied himself of them to come and walk as a man. And he fully embraced the restrictions of being human. You and I were restricted to time and space. We feel pain. We um, walk through the challenges of life. We are limited by the laws of nature. He allowed himself to be limited the time and space and the laws of nature, the very laws that he had put into place, the very laws that had been created as part of the creation that he brought. As he gave up his power and his status, he chose not to use that power for himself, and yet he retained that power in order to bless others. And you see it in the desert where he's been tempted by the enemy, the evil one. He is hungry after 40 days, and Satan says to him, you know, if you're hungry, turn this rock into a piece of bread. And he says, no, I won't do it. You see it on the cross where he is being taunted by the religious leader, saying he saved others, he can't even save himself, when he could have come down off the cross and wiped them out. And he chose not to use his power for himself, but instead he used it to bless and pour out the love of God on those around him. The widow's son at Nain, who he raises from the dead and he puts back into the arms of a grieving mother. Jairus' little 12-year-old daughter, who's restored to life and given back to her grieving parents. The multitudes who are listening to him, and yet they're hungry and weak, and so he breaks, he turns a few fishes and a few loaves of bread to feed them, using his power only for others. And then it tells us that he died a criminal's death on the cross. And for us, we've become so used to the idea of the cross. It's become such a, a symbol and an image that we see all the time that I, I believe we are incapable of grasping just how shameful and debased and vile a death it was. It was a form of execution that was reserved only for the absolute scum of society. Tom Holland is a historian. Uh, he Certainly when he wrote this, I don't know where he's at in faith now, certainly when he wrote uh, this book, Dominion, he, he wasn't a, a follower of Jesus. But he's written a wonderful book called Dominion, which is well worth a read, talking about the history and the influence of Jesus across the centuries. And he wrote this about crucifixion. Exposed to public view like slabs of meat hung from a market stall, troublesome slaves were nailed to crosses. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds of carrion, the vultures. 
Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. This is in turn what rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. He quotes Tacitus of nailing a man to a cross was repellent. It was this disgust at the crucifixion uniquely inspired, which explained why, when slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city wall. And yet the plan of Jesus, Jesus the divine, Jesus equal with God, the ultimate power, ultimately deserving of glory, Jesus' plan, giving love, pouring himself out continually for those he loves. This is the God who is willing to die under the weight of all the evil in the world in order to rescue and restore the ones he loves. Tom Wright describes it as this, Jesus was the perfect self-expression of the true God the ultimate and the only true servant king. The example for all other, all others to follow, all other kings and queens to follow, all other normal, common people like us to follow. And the result, Paul tells us, of that sacrifice, of that laying down, was that Jesus was elevated to the highest place. Verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet that whole concept was unfathomable to the vast majority of the people of the day. In that Roman culture in Philippi, to grasp and understand that, it just didn't make any sense. The whole concept of a human becoming divine, actually that, that, that could be grasped. That was understandable. Julius Caesar had been proclaimed divine after his death, as had Augustus Caesar. And here now was Nero claiming divinity and worship even in his lifetime. But that someone divine should lay down his power for ordinary people in such a shameful way was a monstrous idea. Tom Holland again. Divinity was for the greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings. Its measure was the power to torture one's enemies, not to suffer it oneself, to nail them to the rocks of mountain, or to turn them into spiders, or to blind and crucify them after conquering the world. That a man who had himself been crucified might be held as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. And yet some people did accept it. The, the church in Philippi, the, those small groups of people dotted across the ancient world to whom Paul wrote, to whom the apostles visited. The Philippian church, which we can see when we look at Acts, was made up of Greeks and Romans. It was made up of slaves and it was made up of wealthy business people. This diverse community that should never have mixed and yet somehow they came to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord. 
and often under great persecution, they lived out this example of Jesus. And that example slowly but surely spread. And less than 300 years after this letter was written to the Philippians, even the emperor of Rome had submitted to the true servant king, to Jesus. So today we mourn the loss of our queen. We, following the example of Jesus, sought to live as a servant of those she ruled. She said this in a broadcast to the entire Commonwealth on her 21st birthday. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. 2012, 10 years ago, at Christmas, she said this. This is the time of year when we remember that God sent his only son uh, to serve, not to be served. He restored love and service to the center of our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer this Christmas day that his example and teaching will continue to bring people together to give the best of themselves in the service of others. And that was Paul's prayer too for the Philippian church, that they would give them best of themselves for the service of each other. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Paul is saying, if you have experienced anything of God's love, just the tiniest speck, the tiniest encounter with his love and his kindness and his goodness and grace, then please lay down your ego and your self-interest and serve one another in love. sounds so easy, doesn't it? But we all know it is so hard. And yet, our queen, I believe, was able to so faithfully serve others, so faithfully able to lay down her life in the service of others for 70 years because she had chosen to give her all to Jesus first and foremost. To Jesus, King of Kings, Jesus, King of Queens, and to make him Lord. She chose, and I'm sure it was much the daily struggle for her as for us, to lay down her ego and self interest and make herself accountable 
to the King of Kings, though she was effectively the highest person in the land, she made herself accountable to Jesus. I believe she had encountered his love. And it was from the overflow of his love that she humbly and faithfully gave her life, her whole life, to serving others. And it is only as we encounter and experience the love of God that we are able to love him in return and to lay down our ego and our self-interest for others. This isn't a thing of duty, but it's it's a sacrifice out of love. But as we encounter the love of God, it simply asks of us that we should love in return. And I believe that if our queen had been watching YouTube last Sunday and listening to Phil's talk, which is unlikely, but is possible, that when Phil asked that question at the end, is your deepest desire to honor Christ? I do believe that her quiet and humble response would have been yes. And so we're left with an inspiring example to follow of our queen. But far more so the example of Jesus who gave up everything, laid down his life, took on the death of a slave because he loved you and me. And the question to ask again is the question that Phil asked last week. Is your deepest desire to honor Christ, to lay everything aside to follow him, our ego, our self-interest, just as he laid aside everything to come and rescue you and me because his love was so great he could not sit back and do nothing. And I'll end by reading these words. From heaven you came helpless babe entered our world your glory veiled not to be served but to serve and to give your life that we might live there in the garden of tears my heavy load he chose to bear his heart with sorrow was torn yet not my will but yours he said come see his hands and his feet the scars that speak of sacrifice, the hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. So let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him, each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ that we're serving. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king.